0: I I was at an ordination service once 10 or 15 years ago. It was a cold day, not unlike today, in northern New Jersey. And the lector got up to read this story from the book of Isaiah that Alan read for us a moment ago, this prototypical story of divine call. It's sort of the classic text for an ordination. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lofty. The hem of his robe filled the temple. Thousands of priests and pastors have heard this story read at their ordination. And at this particular service, the lector was, I think, either the mother or the aunt of the young man who was being ordained. And she was very excited at what was about to take place for her son or her nephew. And she um, began to channel that excitement in her reading of the story. And so we began to hear it as she began to describe these seraphs, these cherubim, you know, with six wings, she said, and with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. She's practically like using hand motions up there in the lectern, right? She's really like getting into the story, and it's a great story, right? The pivots of the threshold shook with the voices of those who called, the house filled with smoke, and finally she gets to the climax of this great story God's booming question to the heavenly chorus gathered whom shall I send who will go for us and the woman gripped the lectern and she threw back her head and she cried out here I am send me! <laughs> there were not a few of us who wondered if the bishop was just going to bypass the son and lay hands on the mother because clearly somebody was being called in this instance and it was not the one we were there to see being ordained. It's. It's a fabulous story. I mean, it kind of lends itself to that sort of a treatment, Isaiah's call. At ordinations, though, we always end right there. We end with, here I am, send me. Everybody feels great because we're going to, you know, ordain somebody who's been called by God. Nobody at an ordination service wants to hear the second half of this reading. No newly ordained priest wants to hear what Isaiah hears from God that day. Make the mind of this people dull. Stop their ears, shut up their eyes, confuse them, confound them, preach absolutely incomprehensible sermons until cities lie waste within, without inhabitant and homes without people and the land lies desolate. That is not a nice thing to ask someone to do on your behalf. Preach yourself blue in the face until everything lies scorched and ruined. Have fun. You'll love it. Being a prophet, at least the way that we hear about it in Hebrew scripture, is a horrible job description. I mean, they all try to get out of it, right? Amos says, I'm a farmer, send somebody else. Moses says, I stutter all the time, send my brother. Jonah says, God, I know that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and I hate that about you. Please don't make me do this. The prophet's vocation, as Hebrew scripture records it, is usually to tell an uncomfortable truth to speak an unspeakable word, the prophet is a lightning rod for controversy, willfully misunderstood, and when rightly understood, understandably maligned. Jesus famously observed that prophets are not without honor except in their hometown. Nobody wants to hear what they have to say, especially the people that love them the most. Their job is to be an outlier, a a Cassandra, an equal opportunity maker of offense. If you are not outraged when a prophet speaks, you are probably not paying attention. And apparently part of the prophet's job, at least part of the prophet Isaiah's job, is to be the one to whom no one will pay much attention at all. That's a horrible assignment. God says, I have set you apart to be the one To whom no one will listen. Have fun. I mean, if we knew what we were getting into at the outset, like Isaiah does, the world would be a very different place, I think. If Simon Peter had been warned after Jesus miraculously fills his net with fish and then calls him to be a follower, if he had been warned, you know, hey, you're going to end up betraying your best friend, you'll become the first pope and you'll be crucified on a hill outside of Rome. I mean, the course of human history would be very different, right? Few of us would go into the ministry, I doubt that any of us would get married. The world would be largely unpeopled, I suspect, because nobody would dare to become a parent if somebody told you in advance what you were in for. I mean, you'd be out of your mind to say yes to these invitations if you knew how they were going to play out. Stepping into any role that puts us at the mercy of another human being in the profound way that prophets and parents and partners are often asked to do. Stepping into that role requires a thick skin and a long temper, a kind of divine patience that I don't think any of us possess at the outset, certainly not biologically. Love is, love is hard, as Nadia Boltzweber reminded us last week. Love looks almost nothing like Valentine's Day would have us believe. I mean, there are cherubs involved, right? But they're not the cute babies with wings that Michelangelo painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. For the ancient Hebrews, the cherubim, these these seraphs that Isaiah is describing in the reading, the ancient Hebrews thought of of these creatures kind of like gigantic serpents with wings. They were these huge, like, dragon things who breathed smoke and terrified mere mortals with this kind of unearthly singing. The heavenly chorus that Isaiah hears was a band of monsters. Right? This is kind of like that scene where Sigourney Weaver meets the alien. Right? That's how I imagine the story take place. When they sing, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of power and might, it is not a pretty sight. Right? (laughs) Isaiah falls on his knees when he hears it, not because it's charming, but because it terrifies him. I mean, no wonder God tells him that he will speak to people who will never understand him. When you found yourself in the presence of the living God and God's science fiction monster band, trying to talk about it with anybody else makes you sound like a crazy person. We come to church thinking that we're going to find some kind of safety here. We come looking for solace for the balm in Gilead that heals the sin sick soul. We come looking for Comfort and joy and healing and wholeness, and those things are here, right, to be sure. But then there's these, these weird alien creatures who sing about how holy God is. And holy is just a fancy theological word that means weird, right? Before it came to mean beautiful and special and awesome, holy is actually the name for what happens to Isaiah when the burning coal from the altar touches his lips. Holy, in a literal sense, means set apart. It means different. Holy just means weird. And in order to get holy, you get burnt. I mean, there is indeed a balm in Gilead, but it's meant as as a solve for this kind of wound. It's meant as a balm for the scar that made you holy. And I think many of us carry a scar kind of like that. I mean, we don't always know what to do with it. We don't always know how to recognize it as the scar that made us holy because we live in a world that tells us that our scars are ugly and shameful and ought to be hidden away so that people will like us because we're normal. A scarred body, a wounded body, which is to say a holy body. I mean, I don't have a lot of use for that. I don't know about you, I would way rather be considered hot than holy. I hear you laughing back there, choir. I mean, if the consequences of the holiness that God offers Isaiah is a lifetime of pain and suffering and misunderstanding and watching your world go to hell in a handbasket while you preach boring sermons every Sunday, I mean, does that sound like a fun invitation to you? Does that sound like salvation? That sounds like a death sentence to me. And yet, bizarrely, people say yes to this stuff. I mean, we, we, we fall in love with people. We fall in love with the wrong people. We fall in love with the right people or the right now people. We make ridiculous promises about eternal love and faithfulness. We bring children into this world, a world of pain and suffering, and we know full well that they will break our hearts over and over and over again. We put ourselves right on the border between suffering and glory because there is something in us, some deep nudge of the Spirit that says, maybe this is going to be worth it somehow. Maybe this will be worth the heartbreak and the pain, because there is something in us that tells us that love, that kind of profound, life-altering, transformative love, that kind of risky, terrifying love is worth it, even when it ends blowing up in a disaster of biblical proportions taking the risk of loving somebody without conditions, whether that is a child, a partner, a parent, a friend. In Isaiah's case, it's a people, a community, an entire nation. Putting your heart out there like that, pulsing and bleeding and pumping blood. God only knows why we say yes to that over and over again. But people do say yes. Some of you in this room have said yes to an invitation like that. And you are some of the bravest people I know. But when that that hot burning coal of love reaches out from the altar's fiery brazier and touches your lips, touches your hands, touches your eyes and your ears and your mouth, the secret parts that we don't like to talk about in church, when love burns us clean for the rest of our lives, I think, we carry around the scar to prove that. And I don't know about you, but I would way rather, I would so much rather have the scar, along with the memories that it contains, good and bad. I'd so much rather live with the scar of love than go back and do it differently and more safely. Because there are no regrets when it comes to the challenge of loving one another prophetically. And I think that's what we're asked to do, not just Christians. I think that's what what human beings do when we're at our best with one another. God calls us, invites us to love one another prophetically. And then God lays out for us exactly what that invitation looks like. Your heart will break, the coal will touch your lips. You'll think, I'm not strong enough for this. I'm not good enough for this. I'm not kind, compassionate enough for this. I'm mean, I'm snarky, I have a potty mouth. I'm not the guy you want for this, God. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I am not good enough to love this way. I mean, maybe you all are better at this than I am. I suspect that is not the case. We don't love purely, do we? We love selfishly, we love greedily, we love half-heartedly and begrudgingly. I am a man of unclean lips, I am a man of unclean loves. And yet, And this is where the whole thing shifts, right? This one little Hebrew word that can be translated, and it can be translated, but it can mean in addition to everything I've said, in contrast to everything i said. It's just a little, you know, Hebrew conjunction, and a whole theological system rests on its pivot. Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And yet, for all of this, Isaiah says, My eyes have seen the Lord, the King, the Sovereign. My eyes have beheld Yahweh of hosts. I have hung out with his weird alien choir. I have heard those angels sing, I love badly. And yet, I love. And when you stood in the throne room of God, which is to say, when you've been in the presence of a love that burns you holy, burns you clean, There's no wiggling your way out of a throne room and taking the safe route home, right? The response to prophetic love is to fall down on your knees and cry holy. We give thanks for the heartbreak that that entails because the heartbreak is the thing that makes us human. But I don't think that God is interested in self-contained automatons who know how to protect themselves from this. I think God is interested in scarred and holy people who keep foolishly saying yes to the risk of a scandalous, prophetic, risky, weird, holy love. That kind of love will never buy you chocolate on Valentine's Day. But it is the love that makes you holy. It's the love that burns you clean, and it scars you for life. But it's the thing that makes you whole. And the trade-off is worth it.